Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, we have been turning the corner with the Apostle Paul, beginning at last week's text, verse 27. He turns the corner from the autobiography section, if you will. He's been telling about his predicament. He's been telling about his circumstance. He's been telling about the situation that he's in in prison, his attitude, his disposition, his concern for them back at the church at Philippi. And when he gets to verse 27, he turns the corner and he begins to turn his focus and attention upon them, that local church. And he begins to look at them and, and he wants them to live in such a way that all this wonderful truth that he's standing for, upholding and preaching and proclaiming will be true and, and, and upheld and validated and vindicated and confirmed through the way that they live as a body of believers. And so that was last week's text as we looked at standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Verse 27, striving together for the faith of the gospel. When we get to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul has not changed directions from that thought. He's continuing on in this vein of, of thinking as we read our text this morning. I'm just going to read four verses beginning in verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Praying that you would be honored, that you would be magnified in the preaching of your word. Asking you, Lord, to draw near. And if you will draw near to us, every heart I know that we will begin to be drawn near to you. If you would see fit to grant us the mercy and the grace today. Lord, that our eyes would be open to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, a picture of the church in harmony. What a beautiful picture we have. And I pray that you will work among us today. Walk among us, oh God. Manifest yourself, Lord Jesus. That you may be glorified. That you may be magnified and honored and praised and prized and treasured. And we would receive the help, the nourishment from you. God, we lift these petitions up. We ask you for these things. By faith in Jesus' name. Amen. The flag that I want to fly over this message this morning is make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. You see, because in this text that we just read, verses 1 to 4 is actually one long sentence in the original. With one main clause, the imperative of verse 2a, make my joy complete. Or in the King James, fulfill ye my joy. Paul has already been telling the Philippian Christians that he was rejoicing and that he was going to continue to rejoice. However, he tells the Philippian church that there's a way that they can actually complete his joy. 
and fulfill his joy. In other words, to fill it up to the top, to the point of overflowing. The way to make his joy complete is through their unity in passion, their unity in humility, and their unity in service. That's the way that he says to do it. But before we get to those three things, we have to see the fourfold incentive or motivation that Paul gives to the church for this spiritual unity. I may add a little parenthesis here. This is the reason that Jesus Christ, one of the things, let's say it this way, one of the things that Jesus died to purchase, that he gave his life to secure, was and is the unity of his church. The unity of his bride, known as the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, made up of all kinds of members, but each one of those members are joined together and placed together in the body as God has sovereignly saw fit so that we can all be a mutual benefit to one another in the church. And God has also placed each and every one of you in a local expression of the universal church to express what it is to live as Jesus Christ as the ultimate king and ruler of our individual hearts and of our lives together. It's a picture of the, of the dominion, the kingdom of God. And so it gives us Four incentives to spiritual unity. If you look at verse 1, he says a phrase there. In verse 1, he says, If there be therefore. If there be therefore. And so the word therefore is directly linked to verse 27 that we read just before we prayed. The way that we walk worthy of the gospel. In other words, the way that we walk in a way that is fitting, that is appropriate, that exemplifies, that that validates, that confirms and affirms the claims of the gospel is when we stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, not afraid of our opponents, not afraid of anything because we know in whom we have believed. And we looked at that all last week. And so that's connected to the therefore. Therefore, because that is a reality, because that is what we've been called to, Therefore, look at these incentives, Paul says, or motives for growing in spiritual unity. You see, when we look at these realities, these are not realities that may be the case, but these are true and in fact realities that Paul wants us to look at as motivators, as incentives for pursuing and preserving the spiritual unity in the local church. So it really could be since, since these things are a reality. And so let's look at these four things together. Number one is encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. You see it there? It says, if there be any, or since there is consolation in Christ. And that word consolation can also be translated encouragement. That's what it means to be encouraged, consoled. It, it has the idea of the person of the Holy Spirit in mind here because 
it has the same function that Jesus Christ talked about when he said, I'm going to pray to the Father to send another comforter in my name. And this comforter is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. And what does he do? He comes alongside. That's what the word means. To come alongside and to aid a person in stress, uh, in, 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 in grief or suffering. And that's what this is. An encouragement, a support of the heart, a support of the soul from being in Christ. You see, this is one of the common things that Paul writes about in this letter. That little phrase, in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? If you are, there's an encouragement. There's a consolation. There is a a support for you because you're in Christ. Being in Christ means that you have been delivered from the penalty of your sinful state. It means that you've been delivered from the, the, the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God in the lake of fire, forever in torment. It means that you've been delivered from the, the power of sin in your life. Jesus Christ has broken the power of canceled sin. By coming alongside, by indwelling us, we have the, the ability now to resist temptation. Where before we were slaves to sin, and no matter what we, we could do, we could not overcome the nature of sin within us. So we've been delivered from that. And there's encouragement in Christ, granted eternal life by being in Christ. And we've been given the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, who comes alongside, rather indwells us, to encourage us in this walk of faith. So this is the the first incentive, the first motivator to pursue and to preserve spiritual unity in the local church. The second one is comfort from love. If you see it there in verse 1, if any comfort of love or from love. This this is a very similar word here. It it, it has the same idea of consolation or giving strength and hope. It it has the idea of easing someone who is going through some kind of a grief. And this is a picture here. These are realities that are true for the believer. Because there is encouragement for you being a Christian, being in Christ, then on, on on the other side of that, There is this natural implication that we are to live this out in the context of the local church. So as we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should be encouraging one another in Christ. We should also be uh, comforting one another with the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. I was trying to think about that and how how can you understand the love of God? Can you measure it by saying it's as high as the heavens? Can you measure it by saying it's as vast as the oceans? Can you measure it by saying that it's as deep as the darkest recesses of hell? Can you, can you, can you imagine the breadth and the height and the depth and the width of the love of God that He has expressed in Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, the only Son of God, 
the eternal Son of God, clothed in flesh, was crucified to express the love of God for you. Can you measure it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. There is a comfort from that love being shed abroad in your heart. Listen, I don't care what it is that you're facing this morning. If you can get just a little taste of that love of God in your heart, there is a consolation in that. There is a, there is a strengthening of the hands for the work that we've been called to. There's an easing of the grief. See, we preached last week from the text up there in verse 29. Paul says that it's also been granted to us, given to us as a gift on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. And the way that we can do that is by understanding the joy that we have, the encouragement from being in Christ, the comfort from the love of God. This is the kind of love that Paul commends the Thessalonians. And uh, he writes to them in, in 2 Thessalonians, if you want to look there with me for just a second. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 16. Chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God... Even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So there you see the strengthening. There you see the aiding. There you see the enabling hope that we've been given. That's what we preached about last Sunday night. The hope that God gives us in the fact that what He has promised He will fulfill, what He has said He will accomplish, the task is not, is not impossible. It may look impossible, but it's not impossible because nothing is impossible with God. And so He's going to finish the task. Every people group will hear the gospel. <laughs> God will have a representative at His throne. And so that strengthens me and you for the work. So we've been filled with this kind of love from God. And therefore, by implication, there's a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the second incentive. The third incentive is participation in the Spirit. If you look back there in our text, it says, Any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit. And there's our word, koinonia. This fellowship, this partnership, this participation in spirit or in the spirit unity with god the holy spirit and unity with each other this is speaking of the communion that we have with god the holy spirit in order to have communion with god you have to be in union with god and the way that you're unified with god is through the work of redemption that jesus christ accomplished in the past and through the work of the Holy Spirit who draws near to illuminate your heart. To convict you that you're a sinner. To, to show you the beauty of Christ. You may look and say, you know, a bloody, pulverized, beaten, and whipped man on the cross. That's not, that's not very appealing to me. 
But if the Holy Spirit will draw near and you will see that you're a wretched sinner who is in rebellion against God and that God holds you accountable for that rebellion and He will punish you in everlasting darkness and separation and torment from Him forever in the lake of fire, then your mind and your heart is going to begin to say, Oh God, I, I need some mercy here. And then watch this. Then you're going to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus becomes extremely attractive. You see him as supremely valuable. You see him as supreme, infinitely valuable. And you desire to participate, to be a partaker, to be a partner with God through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul, talking to the Ephesians church in Ephesus, he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, about this same thing of this fellowship, this partnership of the Spirit, this unity that we pursue because of this reality that Christ has died to purchase and secure. If you look at it there in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Jesus prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer. He prays that, that I pray for them, talking about his disciples, his followers, his learners, that they would be one even as we, Father, are one. So Jesus died, at least in part, part of the aim and the goal of Jesus' crucifixion was to affect the unity of his church. So these are all incentives for us to pursue it, and to preserve it in the local church. Number four, final one, is affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy that comes from God. You see it there, it says, if any bowels and mercies. <laughs> Don't you love 17th century English? I said this before, but for the sake of those of you who may not have been here, in 17th century English, they would they would look at the affections as being this inward thing. You've heard people say, I've got a gut feeling. <laughs> that's, what this word come, that's where this word comes from. And it really means affection. Because if you've, ever, if you've ever loved someone, I mean really loved them, then when you look at that person, when you, when you see them maybe getting ready to get hurt, or when you see them rejoice, let's, let's not always think about the negative. When you see them rejoice, then you, you have this feeling, this, this, this feeling that rises up. And it, it affects your physical body. Your mood affects your body. And love for someone affects you. The Bible says that Jesus was moved. He was moved from within with compassion for the people. Because he saw them as sheep that didn't have a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion to save them and love them. And this is the word here, this feeling of love and compassion and mercy, sympathy, showing kindness and mercy to one another. And this is the, this is the incentive that he gives us. That God has shown us mercy in Christ. He's shown us grace and love in Christ. If you're a believer today, I hope. I hope 
that you realize how you are a believer. I hope you realize the great mercy of God. You did not deserve to be in his fold. But he sent his one and only son. He sent his Holy Spirit. He sent the gospel. And he converted your wretched soul. He overcame your resistance to him. Opened your blinded eyes. Caused you to see the beauty of the crucified Christ. So those are the four incentives. So now we come to the imperative that we spoke about in the introduction. Complete my joy. Since these things are a reality, see these things, look at these things as motivators to pursue and to preserve spiritual unity. Are you pursuing it? Are you preserving it in the local church? That's why he gives these four incentives. And then he says in verse 2, fulfill ye my joy. In other words, complete my joy. Fill it up. Make it complete. And then that begs the question, how? How do we do that, Paul? This is the, by the way, this is the way that you give joy to any pastor. Any pastor is going to want to see the, the flock unified in these ways. By being unified in passion, by being unified in humility, and by being unified in service. Let's look at them together. Unified in passions. If you look there, he says, he uses these phrases that are similar, but each one has a little distinct flavor to it. Fulfill my joy or complete my joy that you be like-minded. In other words, that you be of the same mind, that you think the same way. That you pursue common understanding and agreement in matters of God's Word and the pursuit of the glory of God among the nations. That you be like-minded. That we have this same way of thinking. And that's, that's how you can see it in the church. When, when you go to a Sunday school class and you hear something and you go to another one and you hear it again. And you go to a prayer meeting and you hear it again. And you, you, there's a way of thinking about about life together as a church, about the gospel and evangelism and the glory of God among the nations, the way people think about the Word of God. There should be a, a common flavor in the way we think as a, as a body of believers. Unified in passion of the mind. He uses another phrase here, and that is, have the same love. Have the same love. Now, this word love here is it's important to understand. This is the word agape. Many of you may be familiar with this. But the reason I point this out is because the way he's saying have the same love, it means have the same love equally for every believer. It, it, it means do not have partiality because that's the opposite of unity. In order to be unified, there can't be big eyes and little you. In order to be unified, you have to have the same love. There has to be an equality of affection and sacrificial love for every believer. So Paul says, fulfill my joy, fill it up to the top, complete my joy by having a unified passion in mind, by having the same love, the self-sacrificing concern for the well-being of others. The third phrase that he uses is essentially having the same ambitions. 
if you're a note taker, having the same ambitions because he says being of one accord. And that's what that means. Having the same ambitions. It, it's the word one souled. One souled. A people who are knit together in harmony. Having the same desires. Having the same passions. Having the same ambitions. We should all be bleeding the same passion. For the glory of God among the nations. For the exaltation of Christ. Through the proclamation of the gospel. Through the unity of the church that lives in such harmony that people say, <laughs> you know what? There's something to that gospel stuff. Got to be something to it. Because I know those people. And I knew him growing up. People may, some people that see me, they say, you said you was a preacher? <laughs> How did that happen? The grace of God. You see, the reality that, that we proclaim the gospel, the reality of it is to be seen in the context of the local church. Breathe that in. Breathe that in. The love that you have for one another is a validation and a confirmation of the gospel we proclaim. The greatest testimony to the Christian faith is the life of the Christian church. And also the greatest hindrance many times is the life of a local church. So that's the third one. The fourth one is to be united in purpose. And the way it's worded here in our King James is that we have one mind. And so it seems like he's saying the same thing, but it's a little different word, has a little different flavor, but it all is like a circle here. He's saying all of these things that are similar but have different flavors that talk about our unified passion for the glory of God through the proclamation of the gospel, the exaltation of Christ, through the faithfulness and the unity in the passion of his people. That's the first way that we fulfill the joy of Paul. And l let me insert a little parenthesis here. If that's the completion of Paul's joy, if that's how you fill up his joy, then there's by implication above and beyond that, the implication that that's what brings joy to God. Since he inspired him to write the letter. So the, to complete the joy of God. In other words, not that we're adding to the joy of a perfectly whole God who needs nothing. But the way, what one of the ways that God is, is, is rejoicing over his people is through the unified passion of his people. The second way is through the unified humility. We see that in verse 3. And what he does in this phrase in verse 3 is he does a contrast between a negative and a positive. A negative and a positive. Let's look at the negative. He says, let nothing be done through strife or rivalry or vainglory. So that's the negative. Don't let anything be done through this selfish ambition which leads to rivalry and strife in the church. Self-ambition. Someone who is self-centered and self-absorbed who is looking to see their own ambitions carried out through the church causes division in the church. And then he gives the positive sign. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now that word vainglory is vain, is empty, baseless. So you can think of it as, as an empty pride. 
or a baseless self-esteem. In other words, you look at yourself, and when you see yourself, you look at yourself a whole lot more higher than you should because it has no basis in the Word of God for us to do that. And so the opposite of that, the positive side of that, is humility, lowliness of mind. The word lowliness of mind or humility there means self-abasement. True humility in mind, true humility considers other people better, more significant than yourself. That's what true humility is. Now the key to understanding that is the word, um, it says, esteem or consider, count. See, you might can read faster than me. (laughs) So in one sense, if you can read faster than me, it would not be right to say that Kevin is a better reader than you are. You say, because I can clearly read faster than him. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying compare yourselves by your abilities. He's saying consider others. It's a way of thinking about other people. It's an inward way of thinking. It's a disposition of the mind and of the heart that counts other people more significant than yourself. So I look at you and I may say, I may have some things that I could say negative about you. And you may look at me and say, I could say some negative things about Kevin. But that's not the way Paul says that we are unified. He says the way that you do it is by counting other people more significant than yourself. Humility. That's what humility is. An attitude of the heart. And third and finally, verse 4, the way to complete Paul's joy is to be unified in service. Now, what does verse 3 look like? Verse 4 is the answer. Look not every man to his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, the word things there, it could also be interest. Look not to your own, consider not your own interest, but the interest of others. Be others-minded. That's what Paul's saying here. Now, that word things is a filler word. It's not actually there. It just says, it just in, in, in essence, what it says is look every man on, not on his own, but every man also on others. So it can be, you can fill that in with others' fulfillment. Instead of, instead of thinking about you being fulfilled all the time, look to other people being fulfilled. Instead of you thinking about your own happiness, think about other people's happiness. Instead of you thinking about your own joy, think about other people's joy. Instead of you thinking about your own whatever, just fill in the blank. Instead of being concerned and and consumed with self, be others-minded. Look not to your own, fill in the blank, but to others. Be unified in service. Be willing to serve one another. To consider yourself less significant and therefore concern for the greater good of your brothers and your sisters in the local church and in the world. 
Now that's a picture. That is a beautiful picture of God's church. Four incentives. Complete my joy by being unified in your passion or purpose, we might call that one. Be unified in your purpose. Be unified in your humility, considering other people more significant than yourselves, and be unified in your service to one another. Be willing to serve one another so that God may be glorified. Christ may be exalted. You see, when my greatest goal is to see Jesus Christ exalted, and your greatest goal is to see Jesus Christ exalted, we're in harmony. But if it's something else in my heart or it's something else in your heart, then we have disunity. And the way to walk worthily, Paul says, is to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, together, together for the faith of the gospel. And not be afraid of the opposition. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the close this, this morning, we're thankful today for your holy word. We're thankful for your grace that you've shown us in Christ Jesus, sending your only begotten Son, Lord Jesus, for dying on that cross, not for your own sins, but for ours. So that we could be reconciled to you, the true and the living God. And have an irrepressible joy in knowing the true and the living God and making you known to the nations. Making you known to our neighbors and our families and our co-workers and our school mates. Making you known to every person that we can through the way that we live in harmony together. Now, Father, help us. Help us, Lord. Forgive us where we have sinned against you and in your sight. In this, forgive us, Lord, and help us to pursue and to preserve this unity. Spiritual unity for your glory, for your namesake we pray. Amen.